Since this episode was recorded, Minerva Inwald has successfully completed her thesis and graduated as a PhD. Congratulations to Dr. Inwald. Hello, and welcome to another episode of How Was It Really?, the podcast from Sydney University History Department that pulls history apart to see how it works. My name is Nick Eckstein, and I'm a historian in the History Department at Sydney University. My co-host, as always, is Sophie Loy-Wilson, who is also a historian, just along the corridor from me, also in the History Department at Sydney. Hi, Sophie. How's it going? Very good. Thanks, Nick. You know, among the countless cliches that swamp us every day of our lives, I think that the concept of the journey has got to be one of the most tiresomely overworked. It doesn't matter whether you're an athlete competing at the Olympics, an actor giving a speech at an awards ceremony, or somebody climbing the corporate ladder, everybody's on a journey. I'm sort of over it, I have to confess. But having said that, I'm going to immediately do a complete U-turn, contradict myself, and say that I can't actually think of a more appropriate metaphor for describing the personal and professional experience of today's guest. And that metaphor of the journey underlies the question that's at the heart of today's story, which is, how did a seven-year-old Australian schoolgirl going to Saturday morning language classes find herself 20 years later building her own personal archive of the Chinese Cultural Revolution? I know you agree, Sophie, that talking to today's guest in recent days has not just been fascinating, it's, it's been sort of inspiring. And I'm really delighted that she's agreed to talk to us today. Yes, we're really very lucky to have Minerva Inwald join us today. Minerva teaches with us in the History Department at Sydney University and is writing a doctoral thesis on the Cultural Revolution, specifically on the topic of how art and art exhibitions can be used to get beneath the surface of political and cultural life in China between 1962 and 1977. Of course, falling in the middle of that time was Mao's Cultural Revolution of 1966 to 1976. Hi, Minerva, and thanks so much for agreeing to talk to us on How Was It Really? Thank you for having me. We're going to get to the question of how you came to be a Chinese historian in a minute. But first, we always like to begin with a more basic question, and that is, why are you a historian? Well, I think that studying history asks us to kind of question our most fundamental assumptions about the way that the world works and the natural order of things. Um, I find those kind of questions to be really intellectually satisfying and also just exciting in general. Right. So to get our teeth into the reasons as to why you're on that kind of journey, as we keep on saying, or I keep on saying, we need to set the scene. And to do that, we're going to wind the clock back a little bit. So what we're doing is imagining a weekend in 1997. It's nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. Everybody else your age is, I assume, off playing sport, out somewhere having fun or just sleeping in. But you've been up for hours and you're sitting at your desk in a class of students, mostly from Chinese-Australian families, and you're studying Mandarin Minerva. Give us a snapshot. One day when I was seven years old, my mother informed me that I would be going to Chinese school from now on, on Saturdays. I did not attend voluntarily. It wasn't entirely clear why, why, why I was going. So as you mentioned, most of the other students were from Chinese-Australian families. I have no Chinese-Australian heritage. My parents, in fact, speak um, other languages that they didn't teach me. 
so there was a certain amount of bribery that was involved in getting me to attend Chinese classes, which I went to Chinese school until I was about 12 or 13. And then from there, continued to study Chinese at high school. At a certain point, studying Chinese gave me some leverage over my parents. So uh, if I continued with my Chinese, I sort of negotiated with my mum that then I would be able to drop maths. This is a kind of diplomatic standoff for several years. So you go there for the worst of all possible motives to avoid other subjects and you gain leverage. Yes, exactly. So in the end, I sort of said, look, I'm going to do badly in both these things. So I only want to do badly in one thing. And this that is the most is inspiring podcast we've done so far. <laughs> this is great. Um, actually, though, seriously, my impression in talking to you, in talking to you about the interview is that along the way, you actually discover that you're pretty good at Chinese. Um, my Chinese has a sort of strange character to it in that unlike people who studied Chinese at university, I actually didn't know why I was studying Chinese. As I said, I've ended up being quite good at reading and writing where perhaps uh, people who study at university are much more focused on speaking and listening so they can actually use their Chinese practically. But one of the consequences I think of always studying with uh, Chinese Australian students was that I really have a lack of confidence in my Chinese because everyone else in the class had um, this background knowledge that I didn't really share. And you said you weren't quite sure what you were doing it for as, as well. So does that sense of not being quite certain what it's all about change when you get to university? Well, yeah, that was it. Was I, I decided I would continue to do Chinese at university. I thought, you know, I can't really give up now. And at university, I basically uh, studied a mix of art history, history, Chinese studies and Asian studies, all areas that had um, actually quite a lot of um, Chinese subjects that you could take. So I went into university not really being sure what I was going to do with my Chinese and actually not really knowing anything about China either. But Sydney University was a great environment to kind of start to get to know what Chinese history and art history was all about. And having fallen into the art history department, you find in a funny way you don't really fit there either. I thought I would kind of be an art historian of China. Uh, my first real kind of discovery of what I would do with my Chinese uh, took place in the art history department. So in a first year lecture, when Thomas Burgess, a lecturer get, uh, at the time, gave this guest lecture on Chinese art of the 1980s. And it was really exciting to me. I was, of course, interested in Western avant-gardism, but I didn't realise that um, there were similar things in China. So I really thought I was, I did my honours degree as a joint honours in Chinese and art history. However, art history was not necessarily right for me because I was not that interested in writing about paintings. So this makes me think again of this metaphor of the journey because what you're saying to us um, is that you did not follow the typical path of how historians choose their topic. This is an atypical path. Many people know in advance what they want to study. They they choose maybe an area of the world that particularly fascinates them. But in some ways, that area of the world was chosen for you. So the subject kind of came along in a really indirect way for you. So at university, you also encountered this thing called the Cultural Revolution. So let's just tell the listeners what, what that is. Um, and of course, this is the movement instigated by uh, Mao Zedong, who felt that China was in danger of losing its way because people were forgetting their ideals. They were too preoccupied by things like intellectualism and expertise. Um, and along the way, they were sacrificing a kind of ideological purity that had been present when the Communist Party came to power in 1949. 
Do you want to tell us a little bit about your encounter with the Cultural Revolution? Well, my sort of first encounters with the Cultural Revolution were loosely when I was an undergraduate. But again, in my honours thesis, I kind of saw hints of of these particular ideas uh, kind of coming up in my research. So instead of looking at the 1980s, I kept going further and further back into the socialist period. Um, And the Cultural Revolution is a period that's incredibly fascinating to me. It's extremely hard to understand. But yes, basically in 1962, uh, Mao informs the Chinese population that they can never forget the class struggle. In particular, Mao's concerned about uh, China's youth, so the so-called revolutionary successors who have grown up under socialism and so they don't remember the so-called old society and all its horrors. So this process of sort of re-revolutionising young people begins in the mid-1960s, teaching them to kind of hate capitalists and imperialists and all their class enemies. Because they'd become too complacent, is that right? Yeah, I guess that was the idea, was that um, these young people were very different from the older generations who could, in fact, remember how bad things were before socialism. So there's a lot done to kind of transfer that knowledge from older generations to young people by talking about memories and things like that. So what's fascinating to me, Minerva, is that art becomes central to all of this. So what you sort of show is that artistic production, which is tightly controlled by the state at certain points in Chinese history, it moves into other hands. There's a power shift. What happens to art in the Cultural Revolution? Well, yes. So before the Cultural Revolution, particularly in the very early 1960s, There's a real respect for professional artistic skill. Um, Of course, intellectuals are always regarded with uh, some suspicion, but in the early 1960s, you know, you have people from the Ministry of Culture um, and the Chinese Artists Association arguing for the importance of the aesthetic experience so that, you know, if you want to actually give people a political education through artwork, you actually, first of all, have to engage them in an aesthetic experience. During the Cultural Revolution, these ideas change. The Ministry of Culture is destroyed, the Artists Association, the Propaganda Department are all swept away. And in their place is this kind of group of red guards, these these, um, students who form these mass organisations who basically argue that the most important thing is your political uh, kind of emotions. Uh, So the more um, ideologically pure you are, particularly if you're a member of the masses, that's really good, you know, if you're a worker or a peasant or a soldier... And the art that you're creating is based on your sort of revolutionary fervour. That's much more important than the level of skill that you possess. So this is really hard to translate, I think, to an audience that doesn't understand (laughs) what, what this kind of idea about art. You wanted to get into this history. Why? Seems quite difficult. I think that sometimes we don't think about art as being this, something that we actually don't really know what it is and it changes all the time. We assemble this kind of strange group of objects and refer to them all as art objects, even though that assemblage is quite a a diverse set of things. And for me, these kind of socialist art theories are really interesting, right, because this idea that we have of art as individual expression really doesn't work in a socialist society. So in what ways is the socialist state going to adapt art to suit its political needs but also to fit with the particular socialist ideology? And for me, I kind of moved away from the art object and that's why I started to look at art exhibitions Mm. in the 1960s and 1970s to kind of use these events as a way of kind of working out what art is going to be in socialist China. So, in fact, what you're interested in looking at the exhibitions and at the things that are produced by exhibitions and I suppose the writings around them. So it's obviously terribly simple. Uh, You just jump on a plane to Beijing, you visit an archive, the staff show you all the materials from the exhibitions that you want to visit and you're away and no further problems. 
or not? It's not exactly like that at all. You, uh, you know, first of all, Beijing um, has always been somewhat of a scary place for me. Uh, the first time I went to Beijing was in 2010. I did not understand where I was, the scale of the place. My hotel was sort of next to the second largest shopping centre in the world, but I couldn't work out where to buy a towel in this huge shopping centre. There's highways everywhere. It was Chinese New Year. There was firecrackers going off. I thought it was gunshots. So, so anyway, this was my first experience with China in 2010. You are listening to How Was It Really? Before I started my PhD, I actually went to Beijing on what I've sort of called a preliminary research trip, which I went very naively f- um, to spend two months before I started my PhD, trying to get access to the um, National Art Museum of China's archive. This was a complete failure. But it was a kind of research in a way, wasn't it? I suppose the finding your way around, working out the city, how it works and so on, a kind of full immersion experience in a funny way becomes the beginning of your project. Is that a fair thing to say? So I I go on this completely um, naive trip um, armed with a few letters of introduction to try and get access to these sort of really important archives. I'm warned that they probably, they they might not even exist. It's very unlikely that I'll get access. And that became sort of clear to me as the weeks pressed on during this trip. So what I decided to do was actually explore Beijing and follow in the footsteps of other um, historians of the socialist period who do a lot of research in markets. So in the 1990s, people actually finding archival materials that had been thrown out for sale in archives. And I thought, well, let me go and have a look in these particular markets in Beijing and see what I can find. I'd like to talk about that particular experience in a moment, but I'd also first like to ask you about what happens when you start doing formal research. You go to state libraries and archives and there you encounter a really big unexpected obstacle. Uh, yes. So basically the kind of bureaucracy in China and also this, the way in which information is so tightly controlled. So for instance, when I went on my uh, research for my PhD, in fact, I was actually a student at the Central Academy of Fine Arts and expected to use their library, no problems. They had this amazing collection of um, propaganda posters from the period that I wanted to look at. I got there and the librarians told me, oh, they're being organised. And that was not a good sign. That was not. I consulted my supervisor. She said, organised is really bad. You are not getting any access. And, you know, on trips, subsequent trips to Beijing, they still have not reopened that particular set of materials to, to researchers. So, you know, you really have to spend a lot of time building up relationships, working out what's possible and what's not possible. And you talk about building up credibility. They have to sort of know you because you start as a stranger and they don't know who you are. You can't go as nobody, right? So first of all, you you need to have a letter of introduction. So I had to be a student there because without a university to write me a letter of introduction, I would not be able to access the archives. Yeah. You know, and every time you visit, you have to give them your passport. It's not that you just waltz in and have, have a look. And that's actually what's quite exhausting about this kind of research is the amount of time that you have to spend actually just trying to negotiate access to things. And you've got a further and deeper problem as well in that in addition to being an outsider and having to build up that credibility that you referred to, you're looking or wanting to find at least material that officials do not want you to see. Yeah, so I mean, again, here I think I was extremely naive in that first of all, I chose the Cultural Revolution as a research topic, which... I didn't think was uh, necessarily so sensitive, but definitely in terms of government sources, um, certainly is very sensitive. 
But also Beijing is particularly bad. So a lot of interesting research has come out of Shanghai archives. But because Beijing is the center of power as well, that meant that there were just certain things I was never going to see. What exactly were you after and why couldn't you have it? Uh, Well, I would have loved to see sort of government documents in archives. So I knew I wasn't going to get access to kind of national level archives like the Ministry of Culture. But I thought that what I might see is instructions from those national bodies to the Beijing government that, you know, there were bits and pieces of that, but basically not as much as I expected. Again, this, you know, there were things like posters and art books that I wanted to see. There's all just kinds of other bureaucratic problems as well in terms of, um, you know, you can only request three things at a time out of the storage room. And eventually some people at the Central Academy Library got just sick of me and said, just request as many as you want. I can't be bothered walking back and forth. Well, that way it's better than Italy. Because you <laughs> yes, don't, you don't get more through. than three pieces for any reason. Well, so. I, I broke the young man um, at the Central Academy Library, so he would do that for me. So there were these kinds of stupid restrictions, but also um, there were things that weren't in the archives at all. So I knew that the kind of publications produced by Red Guards during the early Cultural Revolution, as far as I can see, they're not actually held at the Central Academy of Fine Arts. So even though that university had lots of Red Guard groups, we know their library collection doesn't include their publications. So you've come all that way. Um, you've journeyed all that way. There's that that metaphor again. And what you find are all these absences and kind of silences and erasures that you've got to negotiate. Um, so not only would the archive staff in Beijing prefer that you probably not look at the Cult Revolution <laughs> and the documents of the Red Guards, but you also find that the archivists have actively thrown out the kind of material that you want to find. So clearly they're quite keen to erase some of it. <clears throat> but what what I think is so fascinating, Minerva, is that on the streets you find this paradox that while most people won't speak to you about what you're interested in, there's so much material that has survived in uh, surprising places that's being sold off sometimes for a pittance. And so we have this picture of you kind of as a almost beachcomber walking along, picking up these material artefacts that are being discarded of the cult revolution that sort of washed up all around you. Um, what exactly did you find? Uh, well, I found all kinds of interesting things from scrapbooks uh, to postcards Um, but most of what I was actually interested in were these kind of newsletters and sort of small journals published by Red Guard groups during the Cultural Revolution. As well as using markets, I also started using this online um, secondhand bookselling website called Kung Fuzi, where I could actually look up what I I was really looking for and and, and see what was available. So I managed to buy these um, mimeographed newsletters produced by Red Guards at the National Art Museum of China, which was really exciting. However, doing research in this way comes with its own limitations, in this case, financial. So there were 60 issues of this magazine, but I could only really afford to buy 30. The person selling the other 30 wanted a crazy amount of money, like 5,000 Australian dollars. So there there were certain limitations. And you're also racing against time because these objects are disappearing um, and actual buildings are being torn down around you. You might go to markets one day and they're there and they've disappeared the next. So there's a real sense of urgency as you build this archive, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who um, has lived in Beijing always has this, you know, feeling of uh, Beijing's kind of rapid changes all the time that that are really out of your control and it can be quite disorienting in a way. But yes, the market where I first did research, where actually before I started my PhD, um, 
I built up quite a, a good relationship with a man at the market there who would bring me art-related um, materials. He said, you know, come back when you're doing a PhD. And when I went back to go and find him, the market had completely changed. So it was no longer an outdoor market. Everyone had been moved inside. And when we talked to a lot of the stallholders, they basically told us that these people could no longer run their businesses the way the market was now. So they had gone back to wherever they were from in China. So basically, uh, you know, not to mention that around this particular market in Beijing, the, the actual physical environment was being torn down. It was a sort of area of Beijing that was being destroyed. So you'd walk through these kind of ruins where you have people's houses just sort of ripped open with a kind of calendar still on the wall and washing still hanging out, but you can't work out where anyone's living. So, I mean, I think that's certainly just the feeling of Beijing in a way and has been for, you know, the whole 20th and 21st century is just the sense of this rapidly changing city that's very much out of the control of the people who actually live and work there. You know, I think people listening to this will get a sense of why we enjoy working in our department because we get to talk with our colleagues about exactly this kind of stuff. And so, because we have conversations informally about what we're all doing. And uh, one of the things that's been clear to us in talking to you, Minerva, is that while many scholars have studied the cultural revolution from all sorts of angles, you are actually doing something new. You're looking from a different angle. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I guess what I would say is that I'm a historian of art during the Cultural Revolution. So I don't think of myself as an art historian. And and really the study of art in the People's Republic of China has Could been... you enlarge on that distinction just a bit? Yes. You're, you're so, a historian of art, not an art historian. So, yeah, so art historians, I think, work out from objects, right? So an art, art historians become fascinated with a particular object and work out from that. Um, I don't work from objects. You know, that's why I work around exhibitions. I work a lot from text as well. Now, I think the Cultural Revolution is not a particularly uh, exciting topic for art historians because the objects themselves are not particularly engaging, the art objects. Whereas for the me... The ideas are, right? Yeah, so for me, yeah, the ideas, um, looking at it as a kind of historian of art during that time, focusing on text, uh, the period becomes actually really exciting. Um, and so that to me is kind of a shift as well where you're not bound, you know, art historians really like to... They kind of have this pull towards objects that they're actually, that they find aesthetically interesting, whereas I've sort of done away with that. I mean, I don't really care if, if something looks nice or not. I, I'm just interested in the ideas around it. Yeah, so you're doing what we all do in a certain sense on our corridor in the history department, which is to, we would say, to use the jargon, historicise these objects. You try to see them in terms of their historical situation in relation to current circumstances and how those circumstances change, which is a classic sort of historical enterprise. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. What impact does this all have on your teaching? If we turn the focus back to your life at uni the university in Australia, does this kind of consciousness and the work you were doing flow into the way you interact with students, for instance? Last semester, I was uh, invited to teach in the new history workshop unit in our department, which is a, a first year unit where there are particular seminars on a time and place. And I chose Beijing in 1966. And I used these objects I had purchased in China to teach a class on kind of artefacts to give students a sense of um, the particular time period. You know, maybe that is the art historian in me. I do like objects. But you actually uh, bring the objects to the classes. So, yeah, so I brought them mm. into the classroom and we had a class where I, you know, let the students kind of go through these um, scrapbooks, look at posters and think about the materiality of these objects. What I kind of discovered as the class drew to a close was that um, a number of my Chinese-Australian students had stayed behind to chat to me further 
about their parents' and grandparents' experiences during the Cultural Revolution. That was actually quite a difficult situation for me to negotiate where you had this kind of family history coming up against a professional kind of academic history teaching. So this is where history collides with people's actual personal lives. Yeah, so, you know, I had a student who brought in her grandfather's Mao badges to show the class, which was extremely generous. But I, I felt anxious about this because we were making then her grandfather a kind of s- object of historical study. That's extraordinary. So, yeah, I mean, the students were really amazing and it made the whole thing very rewarding. And I think objects are very generative like that. They do um, encourage people to think in a different way and, and bring a particular period alive. But it, it, it was difficult for me in certain ways. And would you say this kind of research that you do and the travel that's involved and the encounter with the other culture has an effect on your life more generally? I get the picture almost of a kind of geographically bipolar existence between the two places. What's what's that do to the way you live? Yeah, well, I mean, you're always kind of yearning to go back to Beijing and, and you know, particularly, as I said, with this kind of anxiety about Beijing changing all the time, it's, you know, sort of difficult to be here and have this sense that, you know, the city is is being destroyed or something, which is typical amongst kind of China scholars. Uh, so Beijing is somewhere ex- that gets me very excited about my research. And then I kind of come back to Sydney and have to actually write that up, which is for me somewhat less exciting. But uh, yeah, so there's this kind of strange balance between kind of the excitement of research and then the kind of actual hard work that has to take place in Sydney. Yeah. Look, going back to the question we asked at the very beginning, I'll just remind everyone that we began by asking how did a seven-year-old Australian schoolgirl going to Saturday morning language classes find herself 20 years later building her own personal archive of the Chinese Cultural Revolution? Sophie, I don't think we can sum up the answer to that question in this podcast in a single sentence, but it's clearly, it's intricate, very evocative, and I've certainly learned a great deal from hearing about how it has all played out. Uh, So we've learned a huge amount talking to uh, Minerva and we're very grateful for you coming in and talking to us. Thanks so much. Anytime. Well, that's at least part of how it was or is or has been, I'm not sure, in post-revolutionary Beijing. Remember that you can download this episode of How Was It Really from our website where you will find also images and some interesting stuff related to Minerva's research. See you next time. How Was It Really? It's written, recorded and produced by the Department of History at the University of Sydney. 